If you're in the United States and you're an adult, the future is looking pretty good right now. Beginning April 19th, every adult in every state, every adult in this country is eligible to get in line to get a COVID vaccination. That's Joe Biden, President of the United States. Overseas, though, things are not going so well. And that's Tom Kenyon, former director of global health at the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. 0.1% of doses of vaccine that have been administered have happened in low-income countries. So we haven't even scratched the surface. Which explains why Catherine Soy, Al Jazeera's correspondent based in Kenya, says things there are getting even scarier. You're seeing more and more people falling critically ill. ICU facilities filling up very quickly. There are consequences to this slow vaccine rollout, she says. People are concerned they will not get oxygen. They will die. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. There are people whose last year was hard, and there are people whose last year was really hard. Catherine had a really hard one. My dad was 86 years old. He's had a lot of problems as he grew older, obviously, like many parents. He had heart problems, he had kidney problems. And in November, her father got sick. No one knew what it was at first, but he was lethargic and something was wrong. So we took him to the first hospital. He didn't have breathing problems. So they did a series of tests. They said that his kidneys are failing and he needs to do an urgent dialysis. But that hospital also said they couldn't handle his case. They told the family to take him to another hospital the next day. So when we went there the next day, it's when he started uh, developing these breathing problems. Catherine and her family were worried, and they asked the hospital to admit him. And at this hospital, they were like, oh no, we don't admit people with pneumonia-like symptoms. They hadn't tested him or anything. Catherine says in Kenya, COVID had developed a stigma, and people were afraid. So they told her family to take him back home. And my mother was like, how do you want me to take my husband home? And he's not breathing properly. But they didn't know what else they could do. So they took him home. The next day he got uh, critical. And they brought him back. And because he wasn't breathing well, like those health workers wouldn't touch him. It was my mom to wheel him, to put him on the place where they do the the x-ray. And they stayed there for hours and hours. They did not even put him on oxygen or on anything. And it took me to call so many people for them to actually attend to him. And when they finally did, it was so late. The x-ray showed that his lungs were so perforated. And by the time they put the oxygen on him, 10 minutes, he was gone. My dad was treated terribly, terribly. It's been almost half a year since Catherine's father passed, and now people are starting to get vaccinated in Kenya. Not a lot of people, but some. I feel very sad. 
that my father did not leave to try and get a vaccination, perhaps it would have been different for him. But that is gone. And she thinks about other Kenyan families who are going through the same thing she went through now. The families who are struggling to have their parents vaccinated. Families who are going from hospital to hospital, just trying to look for a bed in an ICU to have their parents, their loved ones, their friends who are having breathing problems. The stigma around COVID is not as strong as it was, she says. But there are new problems. The vaccine's arrival has been slow, and COVID is surging again. Many hospitals are running out of vaccination doses, and I've had many sad stories of people really trying to get help for their elderly parents, but that cannot happen. People telling me that they have to move from hospital to hospital, looking for the vaccine with their parents, and this just increases the risk of getting exposed to the disease. If you know somebody, then you get vaccinated. If you have a connection in this country or money, then you get vaccinated. And that means that the people who are actually meant to get vaccinated, the vulnerable people, the elderly, those with underlying conditions, it becomes very hard for them. Some people who need to get vaccinated are getting vaccinated, Catherine says. Just not enough people. Healthcare workers are being vaccinated. I was recently in our main referral hospital here. It's called Kenyatta Hospital. So when I went there, I found many health workers being vaccinated. That is the priority. That is happening. The problem is when it comes to the other people. And this is a bad time to be short on vaccines. We're right in the middle of a third wave. We are on a partial lockdown. And there are added restrictions in five counties, including Nairobi. When the president was announcing this raft of measures, he painted a grim picture. He said that the rate of infection is 10 times more than it was in January. Then, Kenya's health cabinet secretary delivered more bad news. And he said that the government's hospitals are critically low on oxygen. So there are about 50,000 tanks for government medical use. And 20,000 actually are missing, being hoarded by individuals. Wealthy individuals, hospitals and other industries are holding medical oxygen tanks. Which is critical for fighting COVID, especially the more severe cases. Then... While she was busy worrying about everyone else, Catherine's cousin got sick. She could not get oxygen. And, you know, I have a friend just a few days ago. He developed breathing problems in the house. And we made phone calls to almost every hospital in Nairobi. And there was no room for critical care. So he had no space in any ICU. And he had to wait in line in one of the hospitals where people waited for 92 hours. Catherine's friend was fortunate. He made it and he's feeling better now. But her cousin didn't. Her cousin died. People are dying. These stories are common. Too common, she says. It's not just my story. Many people are telling the same story of hospitals filling up, their loved ones struggling, dying because they can't get oxygen. More and more people are dying. And I think that's why there's so much panic over these vaccines. That's why if you go 
to vaccination centers, you'll find people waiting in line to get vaccinated. It doesn't matter whether you're young or old or whatever. The government plan of the phases of vaccination is out of the window because everybody just wants to get vaccinated and people will do whatever they can to get vaccinated. There is light at the end of the tunnel in Kenya, but it's still pretty dim. The government is saying that perhaps by June next year, they want to vaccinate 16% of the population by 2023, 30%. So people are saying, wait, 30% of 50 million Kenyans? Isn't that too low? Should you do more? But the government doesn't have resources to buy vaccines right now or the infrastructure to store some of the other vaccines. So for now, it has to rely on AstraZeneca that is being provided through this COVAX program. But people are frustrated by that. And Dr. Tom Kenyon, who you heard from at the very beginning, he's frustrated too. Countries are very anxious to get going. He speaks with healthcare workers across Africa on a regular basis. It's part of his job. I'm Tom Kenyon. I'm the chief health officer at Project Hope. I train as a pediatrician and then as an epidemiologist with the CDC, where I spent more than 20 years, most of that time stationed in Africa. Dr. Hayward introduced herself. One of Project Hope's biggest initiatives is training medical personnel. In fact, he was speaking with them just a few hours before we spoke to him. This is what it sounds like. Hope, and it's my privilege to welcome you to this training of healthcare workers in Ethiopia on the new COVID-19 vaccines with the intention that uh, you all will be receiving them soon if you haven't already. We're going to go through all the major vaccines. He doesn't sound that different than he sounds on our call. But on the other end of that Zoom are healthcare workers in Ethiopia. He helps with a lot of Zoom calls like this. We're going to keep all the participants muted and without video simply to help with the streaming. You can't hear the participants, but Dr. Kenyon has spoken to them about their concerns. And they're a lot like the concerns Catherine's talking about in Kenya. They're seeing their intensive care units overflow with patients. And many of the countries where we work, all the countries where we work, essentially do not have sufficient intensive care facilities to cope with a heavy patient load. So these healthcare workers are worried about the patients. But Dr. Kenyon says they're worried about their health, too. Amnesty International estimates we've lost some 17,000 health workers around the world to COVID. Wow, that's incredible. When many African countries lose a doctor, that essentially affects a population of 10,000 people with one doctor per 10,000 in many of the countries where we work. So it's devastating to the health system, particularly in these countries that already face tremendous shortages. And now, with vaccines available... The situation's gone from untenable to unconscionable, Dr. Kenyon says. At this point in time, I think it's highly unethical to be asking health workers to go into these very high-risk scenarios, very often lacking adequate PPE to protect themselves, and very often bringing COVID home, bringing COVID to their community, and of course, themselves getting infected When we have highly efficacious vaccines, almost 100% effective against severe disease and mortality, it's just morally unacceptable that health workers should have to succumb to COVID. 
Can you talk about what you see as the obstacles there and, and how to overcome them? One of the major obstacles, obviously, with low-income countries is they didn't have the budget to be able to put forward purchase agreements like the U.S., the U.K., and other high-income countries were able to do. That's one. They got out of the starting block, so to speak, very late. Two, they don't have much bargaining power as individual countries. So that's why COVAX, created by WHO, is becoming a useful source of vaccine. That said, support with vaccination of healthcare workers was needed yesterday. I would plead with countries who have excess vaccine to share that immediately. And I know help is on the way. The U.S. has committed $4 billion to COVAX. Other countries are pledging support. But remember, the commitment of COVAX is 20% coverage by 2022. That's almost two years away. And what's going to happen in the interim? So let's talk about the back and forth around the vaccine from AstraZeneca. There have been reports of blood clots. Germany, Spain, France are the latest countries that temporarily halt their use over a concern over blood clots. Several European countries have limited or halted their use of that vaccine. The World Health Organization says the benefits of AstraZeneca far outweigh any dangers. The WHO has uh, urged countries to keep on using the Oxford-AstraZeneca coronavirus vaccine as a growing list of European nations suspend injections. And we know that AstraZeneca is the vaccine of COVAX, which is the WHO's program to get vaccines to the developing world. What have you heard from the people you're serving, the people you're working with, about their thoughts? Yeah, of course, when we're doing these trainings and this morning with Ethiopia, a lot of questions come up about the various vaccines. And we provide the objective evidence that has been published or at least is on the WHO website, because we we have to see the data. Of course, there's some hesitation around this recent issue around blood clots. AstraZeneca had some issues with efficacy, particularly in, in South Africa, where they had a variant, and that led to South Africa abandoning their plans to start with AstraZeneca and instead going with J&J, which had a better efficacy profile against their variant. Other countries, though, have taken up that product. AstraZeneca, I think, is still going to be considered part of the vaccine toolbox, but countries are going to have to judge that on their own on the basis of its merits. What are the levels of vaccine hesitancy or acceptance in in a place like Ethiopia? There's very little vaccine hesitancy in Ethiopia. Uh, A recent poll estimated at the public level 90% 90% would affect, would accept the vaccine. Wow. And, and generally speaking, that's true for vaccines in Africa because they've seen these diseases. And they're horrible diseases. A child with measles basically chokes to death on their own secretions. A child with pertussis coughs until they pass out and ultimately expire. A baby with neonatal tetanus, raising your voice can set them off into seizures and convulsions that ultimately lead to death. So the public in lower-income, middle-income countries, they know vaccines work. We've cut child mortality in half over the last 20 years, much of that through addressing vaccine-preventable diseases. So they, they know the benefit. At the same time, social media 
that's both an asset and a curse because misinformation can be spread rather rapidly. And that comes up in our sessions. And they hear this is something created by the West or this is something created to sterilize us or they're going to put microchips into our body and be able to track us. There's all kinds of misconceptions and all we care about is the truth. So while the U.S. is days away from making any number of these COVID vaccines available to every adult American, according to President Biden, what's being done to protect the rest of the world? I asked Dr. Fenton. Have you seen any signs of countries beginning to do more, of the U.S., for instance, gearing up to give out more vaccines, other wealthy nations doing the same? I hear rumblings. I was very encouraged by the Secretary of State uh, Blinken's comments on the 5th of April. Good afternoon. Where he was announcing the appointment of Gail Smith as the coordinator of diplomacy around vaccines. She has deep experience in responding to public health threats. I think this is why they're creating that position. And Secretary Blinken said it perfectly. It's in our interest to achieve global COVID-19 control. Even if we vaccinate all 332 million people in the United States tomorrow, we would still not be fully safe from the virus. Not while it's still replicating around the world and turning into new variants that could easily come here and spread across our communities again. COVID at the moment is estimated to be costing us, costing the world, nearly $400 billion per month, per month. So do the math, that translates into trillions over time. And the estimated cost by the World Bank is just $12 billion for COVID vaccines to reach a sufficient level to interrupt virus transmission. A recently published study from the World Bank. Now, $12 billion sounds like a lot, but when the pandemic is costing us nearly $400 billion, not to mention the humanitarian aspect. And clearly, the only way we're going to get there, the only way, is through vaccines. Back in Kenya, Catherine's ready, and African countries are thinking about how to get more vaccine on their own, too. Not just in Kenya, but across Africa. We also have the capacity to manufacture our own vaccine. Why can that not happen? And I know there's a lot of politics around vaccines, but people are saying Africa has some of the largest, best laboratories, some of the best scientific institutions, some of the best scientists, and we have a capacity to produce our own vaccine, and then we're not going to have to compete so much with the Western world. But in the meantime, she lives in fear of Kenya going through a fourth wave. So if we have, say, a fourth wave that is more severe than this third one, and we don't have that immunity, we don't have the health facilities, that is a huge cause of concern. And she still thinks about her dad. What makes me so sad is that how if someone passes away in a hospital, you say these doctors tried the best they could to save him, but they couldn't. But this time I say nobody tried. Maybe he could be alive, maybe not, but nobody tried. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Amy Walters with Alexandra Locke, Nagin Oliai, Priyanka Tilve, Ney Alvarez, Tina Kispe, and me, 
Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan was the sound designer. Tom Benton is our story editor. And Stacey Samuel is the Takes executive producer. We'll be back. <laughs> 